Please listen carefully. Hello, and welcome back to the Extra Buttery Podcast. This time on the show, we're going to be talking about Arrested Development Season 5. Just been announced that the cast is getting back together for another season on Netflix. So we'll uh, we'll get into that, whether that uh, bodes well for the show that uh, the fans love so much, or whether there may be some pitfalls ahead. Then we'll talk about a couple of new releases that just premiered over the past couple of weeks, starting with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and then followed by King Arthur Legend of the Sword. The first one had a pretty solid opening, but the second one is already starting to look like the first major flop of the summer movie season. So we'll talk about both of those. Then we'll dig a little bit into the Power Rangers, which uh, we talked about previously on the show, but it seems like the optimistic box office projections for that film and the series the studio wanted are not coming to fruition. So uh, Jason will have a little bit to say about that. And then closing things out, we'll take another look at the upcoming summer movie season, and most specifically, Alien Covenant, which is uh, set to come out this coming weekend. And we'll take a look over the season as a whole and figure out where this new Alien movie fits in. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host Jason Chen. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing all right, but uh, let's get started with uh, Arrested Development. Would you call yourself a fan of the the original uh, series when it was on TV? Huge fan. It's one of the funniest TV shows I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. I'm with you. And so I was one of those people who really was excited to come back. I think it was on Netflix, right? It was like two years ago. They did, um, it led the charge with the whole Netflix originals thing. They did a season four. Right, right. This was like one of their biggest licenses that they had got. And it was so bad. I didn't finish it. I couldn't finish it because it was just like, the humor wasn't very good. And from what people have told me, the jokes kind of pay off if you yeah. skip through it. But I could never sit through till the end. Yeah, no, I'm I like I can sympathize with that. Like, I remember being really excited when Netflix got the permission to not reboot the series, but kind of kickstart it back to life. And yeah, the the biggest thing for me was just that they had been delayed so long putting it together, partially because in the space of time since the show had been originally canceled, the stars of the show had gotten so big. Their careers had just like, yeah, they totally taken off and it had become almost impossible to get all of them in a room together to do those big scenes that really made the original show so great. You can go through any number of articles about this, but really what killed the, uh, the fourth season on Netflix was the fact that you couldn't get any of these actors to be all together in a room, getting their characters bouncing off each other and kind of, you know, rekindling that chemistry that everyone loves so much about the original series. That's fair. That's fair. I don't think the writing was as strong, though. I almost think that they, I, I don't know what the process was like, but it felt a little bit like the writing was informed by the fact that they, they knew they couldn't do the scenes the way they had done originally. Yeah, which is to your point, and, and that's a fair point. But uh, I, I just think, I don't even remember the plot itself, um, but I don't remember it being particularly memorable or funny. But I mean, I could quote like 10 things right now from the first three seasons, right? How much clearer can I say? There's always money in the banana stand. No touching. No touching. No touching. No touching. It's such a like a quirky, um, kind of like a punny show. Like I, I remember there being a lot of puns. Like maybe is a pun, right? Yeah, and uh, like and <laughs> maybe is really funny. Yeah, yeah and, and, and her uh, who. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the Korean kid that they had living with them for a while. Uh, yeah, what was his name? Um, Anyang? Yeah, Anyang. Because, like, apparently uh, Anyang's, like, hello in his language in Korean or something. And they just assumed it was his name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, there was nothing like that in the Netflix series. So I'm a little wary about this one. Um, I would be a lot more hyped had they not fallen flat on their face with Iron Fist. Mm, yeah. And I haven't seen a lot of Netflix originals that were comedies. 
so I can't really say. Mm. But I mean, I as always, I hope it's good, but I don't think it's going to be good. Yeah, I mean, even in the space of time between the premiere of season four and now with this announcement that the the new season's going to be available next year, 2018, it's not like the careers of Jason Bateman or Will Arnett or Portia de Rossi, like any of those folks. They, it's not like they've gotten any less busy, so... Yeah, but I mean, if they really wanted to make it work, they can make it work. You would hope so, yeah. yeah. If the writing is good and and has all the parts that they like, then it shouldn't be a problem putting them all together. Because, I mean, last time they relied so heavily on blue screen kind of CGI effects, I mean... Speaking of Netflix disasters, have you been keeping track of Bill Nye's new show? I've been watching it. I think I got like two episodes left to go. I watched the YouTube video of Sex Junk, and it's... (laughs) The most awful thing I've ever seen. I couldn't finish it. Yeah, because he got Rachel Bloom from uh, My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend to do that segment. Right, but it was just a terrible segment. And from what I've yeah. heard, the show is terrible. And Bill Nye, let's be honest, like Bill Nye has changed a lot since he started first started on TV. He has. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with you. I think there's a segment where he does, he like answers Twitter questions or something like that um, on YouTube. Anyway, people ask him questions on Twitter, and yeah, he answers them. Yeah. And he comes off as, like, super arrogant and obnoxious. Mm. And he was never like that. Yeah. Maybe he's just, like, sick of stupid questions. But he's totally changed. Yeah, because I think in the years since the original, like, Bill Nye, the science guy thing... I mean, he... In that show, he that was very clearly a kid's show, but, like, we grew up with it, so... You know, we have this like major nostalgia for it. It was a good show. Yeah, I mean, it's a great show, and like you, you learn a lot from it even now. Like going back and watching the the old episodes. But I think one thing he struggled with is finding a tone that works for adults, because he did a show called The Eyes of Nye that was back on PBS in like, ooh, maybe even ten years ago, I think. And I feel like that also fell a little bit flat in the way that the new Netflix show has because. Every so often, he'll do his kind of classic Bill Nye. He has like this voice that he does when he's trying to be funny. And I feel like it works better with kid-oriented material than it does with adult-oriented material. And then when he really gets into the meat of what he's talking about, uh, especially in the new show, like the first episode of the new show is all about climate change. And you can just feel that all of his pent-up emotion about he's an activist as well as a scientist right yeah he's an activist you know like he you can tell he's been doing a lot of hits on fox news where he's been debating climate change deniers and he's he's got a lot of pent-up anger about that well you know that's his own fault if you go on tv with fox you're just gonna get angry yeah like what, what else did you expect yeah so the first episode of the netflix show really has that and it's yeah that i almost wanted to turn off after that because i felt it felt it just felt preachy he's very preachy sex chunk was awful though like the lyrics were crude and not even good and didn't rhyme and the production value was awful yeah that's not the the first segment that rachel bloom did for the show she actually had another segment a few episodes previously where she was same kind of like dance routine but she was talking about evolution of life on earth and how life might have come like ridden down to earth on a meteor so <laughs> uh-huh. uh but it was the sa- it was basically the same kind of like you know rachel bloom does a crazy 1980s style dance routine kind of thing and the lyrics work just as rough around the edges. Yeah, it's just the lyrics and the and the music are just awful. Nothing against Rachel Bloom. I'm sure she made it as best as she could, given how terrible the material was. I feel like the just in general, that show has the structure is a little bit too rigid. Like they always go like, all right, let's do a correspondent in the field. All right, let's talk to the correspondent in the field. Now let's go over to our panel of, of experts. We'll talk to them for a little bit. Then we'll do like one experiment in the lab, quote unquote, which is nothing like the lab that everyone loves from the kids show in the 90s. And then we'll have like a musical interlude or maybe we'll have like a basketball star come out and have a fun little moment with a kid with like a dunking with wires or something. I was going to say like the I've never known an adult that watched the old Bill Nye, the science guy episode and said, oh, this is for kids. Like, as, as long as something is good, I think you can draw both adults yeah. and kids. Yeah. Like, look how, like, even movies like Inside Out and Zootopia, I think 
adults loved it as much as kids. Yeah. And, like, what I loved most about Bill Nye's old show was his little experiments that he does on his lab bench. Yeah, and, yeah, like, you can tell that he's getting really excited about it. Like, screw the correspondence and what they think. Like, you just have dumb people showing up on the air having, like, a six-second clip. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And there's no point. Netflix... I feel like has this problem where they feel like they really need to cram a lot of material. So Jessica Jones and Luke Cage went on for like three episodes too long. Mm, yeah. Some shows obviously have different lengths because the stories are different. But I feel like Bill Nye's show is like perfect for those like a 15, 20 minute segments. Yeah. And that's all you need. The science for adult show, there already is one. It's called Cosmos. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Yeah. And like... I mean, if you want to watch, like, nature and documentaries, I highly, highly, highly recommend Planet Earth. Mm, yep. You'll learn so much, and it's so beautifully shot. I mean, and screw, screw these science shows. I mean, go read a book instead, you know? I think with Bill Nye, like, it's almost like he's stuck in an old school, like, news show kind of format where it's he's got to have the, the expert panel. He's... But not even a good old news show, right? So it, there, there's a few hokey kind of uh, segment-style things that's like, and now we're going to have a dance routine. And it's like, what is this, Ed Sullivan in the 1960s? Like, come on. So, yeah, it didn't, it didn't land the way I think they wanted it to. You saw Guardians this weekend, didn't you? Or you did see Guardians? I did, yeah. Well, I saw it. I saw it the, the weekend it came out. Did people clap afterwards? Yeah, I think I, I like uh, Toronto audiences are usually pretty good for that. They like to have a little bit of audible response. Uh, uh. You don't like that? I think it's pretty cool people do that. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, uh, when I was growing up in uh, on the east coast of Canada, people were almost absurdly polite at the end of movies, and there was <laughs> there was like no. That's just Canada. For yeah, you. I don't know. Like I, it was just it was completely it was totally culturally different when I when I moved to Ontario. Really? You got culture shock? Uh, I wouldn't say culture shock, but I like there was a few little things that I noticed that were like, oh, okay, so people will actually like applaud at the end of the movie, even though it's not like the creators of the movie are around to hear the applause, they'll they'll still do it. So that was kind of cool. They didn't have that in uh, Newfoundland? No, no. They uh, People would just like, all right, the credits go and people would kind of watch them go up or they'd start to file out of the theater and that was it, you know? Huh. Yeah. Okay. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure why that was, but it was just sort of... Yeah. You guys are just really hard to impress. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. You know, living living in that uh, that uh, windswept rock of uh, of a province. But no, like I, I saw Guardians. I had known going in that the critical consensus was pretty positive. But even on its own merits, one thing I really liked about it was how, you know, the first movie had spent so much time explaining why this gang of misfits had kind of banded together and decided to save the universe in the first place. And it was supposed to be this tale about people who shouldn't work well together, but do. And then this movie kind of breaks down the team into these, it kind of pairs them off. So we've got Star-Lord and Ego, they kind of have a bunch of scenes together, just the two of them. Rocket and Yondu have a bunch of scenes together, just the two of them. Same thing with Gamora and Nebula. And then even Drax and Mantis. And they kind of, James Gunn uses his screenplay to separate them out and allow these like two person scenes to build up where they kind of hash out their issues. And you learn a lot more about the characters and they can air out the stuff that's stressing them out, which um, seems a little bit cheesy for, for a Marvel film. But I think in the context of Guardians of the Galaxy specifically, it worked really well. To that point, I think it kind of worked against the film as well because I thought the plot kind of meandered. It kind of was a little bit all over the place. And this reminded me of um, Age of Ultron when all the Avengers retreated back to... Yes. What's-his-face house? Jeremy Renner's house. And they have all this, like, exposition and character development. Except Guardians of the Galaxy did it, like, a hundred times better. And in more creative ways. And I really appreciated actually having those relationships kind of explored and having them pair off. Because a lot of times it really developed the characters and showed you a lot more of, like, the Guardians of the Galaxy universe. Um, so, like, Ego and Peter Quill, their kind of segment is very different from Gamora's and it's very different from Rocket's. So I appreciated that part. Also, like, 
I kind of walked in like avoiding a lot of the trailers and TV spots because I didn't want to spoil it for myself. So I kind of had a suspicion that Kurt Russell is the main villain. Like uh, when he around showed up and he started going on about he was his dad and whatnot. But he didn't reveal himself as a villain until like midway through the movie. I think that caught people a little off guard. And I do agree that you can't introduce the main villain that late. Even though if you rewatch it again, you know, he's he's there at the beginning. He's in the first shot of the film, right? Yeah. But uh, it just takes too long to get to the reveal. Yeah, like they don't they don't kind of reveal the context of him being a villain until yeah. late in the second act or beginning of the third act. And then when they do that, it's suddenly the movie is goes from zero to 60. And it's like, oh, my God, now it's like an, an apocalyptic kind of climax type scene where Ego is using his like vaguely blue like world destroying goo to take over all these planets and it's like all right now we're gonna do this and we're gonna have like ego's planet is falling apart we're gonna have a showdown in the center of the planet and boom 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 and it uh it accelerates you didn't like the last sequence though i mean in general i kind of i was fine with it but structurally it it was a little bit sudden i think it's pretty cliched and you can kind of figure out pretty early on that kurt russell was the villain Right. So so you sit through like a good portion of the movie just wondering like, okay, when is the reveal? All right, let's just move on. And I had even heard that there were scenes with uh, the Nova Corps that were filmed. Oh, yeah. They were cut out for obviously time. Um, but uh, Elizabeth Debicki, I thought, was excellent again, as always. Yeah, yeah. Tom Clementiev as Mantis is really good. I, I think overall, like, it was still one of the best Marvel movies because it's so colorful and so bright. And the other thing I didn't expect is how emotional it was. Like, I didn't expect that at all. So kudos to Michael Rooker, who played Yondu. Yeah, yeah. His story and Peter Quill's. And the last quote he says to Quill, where he's like, I may not be your father, but I am your dad. I've always been your daddy. I love that line. And I thought he pulled it off. A lot of cameos from people I didn't know were in it, too. Like, I knew Stallone was in it. Yeah. But he didn't know, like, Michelle Yeoh was in it. And I think there's one other guy I'm forgetting. Two other guys I'm forgetting. Yeah, the Ravager crew, uh, he was in Pulp Fiction. Um, Ving Rhames. Bing Rames, yes, yes, uh, and there's one more I can't remember the name. Um, apparently, no, Miley Cyrus did a voice for the like disembodied robot. Yes, head. I knew that, but it wasn't Miley Cyrus; it was an actor. I can't, I can't remember. Anyways, yeah, they pull those kind of cameos together right at the end. Um, but I, I like the point you made about how colorful the Guardians universe is because you set that against the gray kind of very. Uh, so stark stark i like how you use that <laughs> stark exactly in my review i was like stark ahem <laughs> it's appropriate because the avenger stories that happen on earth are kind of they have that quality to them but then so all of a sudden in the guardians universe we get these like pops of color like the starship engines have this like rainbow fire coming out of them mm-hmm. all, even they're like, spitting out fireworks in that big scene towards the end like everything is just that the palette is completely different and i feel like between the the guardians films doctor strange ant-man to an extent in some of like the the scenes that quote 2001 a space odyssey and then thor ragnarok i mean you can tell from thor the the trailer for Mm -hmm. thor ragnarok it's like this kind of cosmic color palette that i just i just kind of love like it it's yeah. It calls back to the comics, and it it's not ashamed of what it is, and it's so much more fun to look at. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Oh, the one thing, two things. So we were talking about how colorful it was. I was also shocked by how violent it was. The scene where they started executing, sorry, spoilers ahead, uh, the part where they mutiny on the ship, and start killing Yondu's uh, supporters. And the part where they torture Groot was, like, pretty heavy stuff, man. Yeah. Like, that's worse than any of the violent, quote-unquote, violent fight scenes in Avengers or any of the other mainstream Marvel movies, right? Like, outside of Logan, that was, like, the most heavy violence I've, I've seen. I was so shocked. Yeah, because the camera really does linger on all these bodies kind of floating out into space, and they've been... Yeah, and, like, Groot. Like, Groot's a freaking baby, and they're, like, freaking 
hazing him. Yeah, they're hazing him. Although the one the one thing I did like though is they they go a certain distance towards hazing him, and then they're like, "No, but he's too cute. We just can't." Yeah, uh, yeah. But by that point, I was already like thinking it. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I could have lived without one or two of the extra credit scenes or post credit scenes, but that's fine. There are plenty of Easter eggs to go around in that one. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they even like, did you catch the Jeff Goldblum one? I did. I did. Yeah. He was kind of like, he was just dancing to himself during the credits in one of the little, the little inset uh, bits. But I was like, oh yeah, you're mm-hmm. going to be in Thor Ragnarok. I, l- I like that. Look forward to volume three. Yeah. But that's going to be post phase three. So we're going to like, yep. it's going to be after all the infinity war double film stuff. So we may be seeing phase three, like with a new captain America, there may be a new person in the iron man armor. So, but I hope volume three doesn't bring in all those Marvel, other Marvel characters. No. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, uh, guardians works best when they kind of allow it to be itself and kind of we're out in space and, and doing our own thing. So how is uh King Arthur? You know, Hollywood tries to keep, like, Charlie Hunnam happening, but I think everyone's just kind of rejecting it. Yeah, I don't know if it's his agent or if it's, um, I don't know what the story is there with, with Charlie Hunnam specifically, but interestingly enough, he's actually not the worst part about King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Who is? I wouldn't say that actually any of the actors are bad, just that... Uh, if anything, when it comes to casting, it's a missed opportunity with Jude Law because uh-huh. uh, from the way the trailers depicted his character as this like evil sorcerer who usurps the throne, I kind of hoped that he would have this totally campy performance where he would be like mm-hmm. totally mer- mercurial, like uh, going between whispering and yelling, kind of like Eddie Redmayne in Jupiter Ascending. I mean, just have a listen to... Redmayne's nutso performance. My mother taught me what was necessary to rule in this universe. By killing people? I create life! And I destroy it. Life is an act of consumption. So what I wanted from Law was a really memorable, wonky performance uh, in keeping with the overall gonzo kind of nature of the movie itself. But instead, he he plays it relatively straight, like he's he's just a sorcerer, he's got some magic powers, and then he gets, spoiler alert, he gets defeated at the end. For the folks out there who haven't seen the trailer yet, here's a clip. There are rumors, the legend of the sword of a king other than yourself. Find him. I know your story. What kind of a man would you become had you inherited your father's kingdom instead of being raised in a brothel? I would say the biggest problem with Legend of the Sword is just it's cut to death. You can feel Warner Brothers grubby pause over the whole enterprise. This is the Warner Brothers of Suicide Squad at work. Not to totally absolve Guy Ritchie too, because I mean, who knows how much impact he had in the editing suite. I was gonna say he made his name through editing. Yeah, like that's that's his thing. But I feel like maybe it was a perfect storm of a director who whose style is defined by editing combined with a studio who is so self-conscious about trying to get this like a really saleable product that they can turn into a giant series. And, you know, as we saw with Suicide Squad, they made multiple versions of the movie. They cut it this way and that way. And they brought in a trailer house to totally change it, change the the tone of the film. And it feels like the same things on the go here, where they wanted to make a multi-film cinematic universe out of the, the King Arthur legend. And, they tested it so many times and they re-edited it so many times that when you watch the final product, it just feels like, wait, okay, hang on. We got this scene. It's kind of cool. Like I'm kind of into it, but then we're cutting back to something else and then we're on to something else again and in and out and flashes of various things that you could see yourself being interested in. If you could just see the whole thing, like just see it cut together traditionally, maybe with a bit of Guy Ritchie flair. Mm-hmm. So what was the best part about the movie, though? 
I would say the best part is just how willing Guy Ritchie and his team were to to kind of reflect all the magic and the the sword and sorcery stuff that comes out of the King Arthur legend. Like they, uh, unlike Antoine Fuqua with his 2004 King Arthur film, you know, he tried to go in this very historical route where he was like, what if King Arthur was a Roman centurion? And what if that movie had a big names, by the way? Like, it had a lot of big names. It did, yeah. Yeah, it had a, and, like, you can go back. Well, before they were big, right? Before they were big, yeah. But, like, yeah, the cast there, the supporting cast, you know, they went on to to do some, to have some really big roles. But Antoine Fuqua went in a really, like, in a historical, granted, like, it was, you know, he was still making a lot of it, it up. A, it was a horrible movie. Yeah. But he was still trying to make a case for, like, what if King Arthur had been a real guy? This one is like, nope. We're going completely the other direction. We're going to have <laughs> giant elephants. We're going to have giant snakes. Awesome. We're going to awesome. we're going to have Jude Law transform into like a hulking skull Grim Reaper thing. Maybe awesome. <laughs> so like yeah, all these great things. And and when you're watching those moments by themselves, you're like, oh, this is really cool. Like this gets me into it. But then the movie is like, and it it cuts into something else, or it it doesn't allow you to really. It doesn't. It doesn't develop any of it, and you just feel like the way it couldn't have been shot that way. Do you think Charlie Hunnam could ever be a list? Uh, hard to say. I feel like he, if he got the right project, he could probably get up there. But I mean, I'm not a. I, I'm not against him right now. But look how many chances he's had. He has had a lot of chances. Yeah, yeah. Wait for his agent to come to him with like some christian bale caliber role where he has to like either gain or lose a bunch of weight and uh do it in three months and get an oscar nomination out of it like if he gets something like that then people might take him seriously yeah fair enough i haven't seen it yet i'm looking still looking forward to it yeah again it's it really comes down to the editing it's there's like the scene where king arthur is supposed to go into basically like a an underworld kind of place to learn how to use his sword you can tell from the way it's shot that it was storyboarded out and shot so that you get to see the whole experience of him like being transported to this place and then getting knocked around and finally getting to this destination and activating the sword but they're cutting to it at this just completely frenetic pace and you can't enjoy any of it is this worse or is civil war worse for editing this is worse than civil war for editing for sure oh my god no way. It's going to make me throw up. Yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. There's there's this whole bit towards the end where like a giant snake is unleashed in the in Camelot and somehow like Jude Law's character teleports out of the throne room and is completely safe and you have no idea how that happened. Like the throne room is destroyed by a giant snake and and his character just pops up later on and you're like how like we never see him get out of it it feels like like one of those kind of loose ends that can only happen from a really shoddy edit Mm -hmm. fair enough Um, and there's there's so many of those throughout the movie um so yeah it's 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 really too bad because the 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 cast is there the concept is there um but you can tell the warner brothers really wanted to to build like uh this cinematic kingdom out of it one of the biggest things that they really focus on is like what if the sword excalibur was like a superpower and like king arthur was the flash it could move <laughs> could move really really fast and like kill like mow through a thousand dudes and then i'm sold i want to see this movie rob yeah in a fraction of a second and like and then suddenly it's like boom real time and, and he's like panting because he's out of breath and all these dudes are just totally killed like totally laid out in front of him and all of his friends are like whoa he's really really powerful um so they they try to paint him as this superhero and you're like okay i get it like medieval superhero fine you know let's you know uh you can you want you can see what where warner brothers is going they're like let's have a second film where it's all about sir lancelot and his magical power or sir bedivere or sir gawain you know let's run through the list but somehow with the box office receipts they've been getting i don't think it's going to happen no um speaking of box office receipts power rangers yeah the meat of our the meat of our show this episode (laughs) so uh where's it at now 
like 80 something uh was it yeah it was 80 something domestic and then they were really hoping that the foreign box office would pick up they figured like it would open in china it would get a really big opening and justify the whole like the really big series they had in mind but i think it opened like the opening weekend in china was like three million whereas something like that guardians opened to like 60 million right and i have thoughts about that too I'm pretty disappointed Power Rangers didn't get close to 100 like I thought it would because like it's generally not a bad film. Like it's actually quite entertaining. I didn't buy for a second that that this was like a six film franchise. Like it just doesn't have that quality. It doesn't have that fan base, but it easily could have been a trilogy. And it sucks that it didn't reach 100 million because if it was a trilogy, the second movie could have been really good. Um, because they did a really good job of laying the foundation in the first movie and developing these characters. The other day, I was uh, I was trying to explain Power Rangers to someone, and the best way I could come up with that Power Rangers is the film where like, if you ever had to take a bunch of snotty teenagers to a theater to see this movie, you walked out thinking that it wasn't a huge waste of money and time because it was a movie that was okay. And it was a movie that you'd rather these people watch than something like American Pie, like a spinoff, you know? There is some value to it. So in that sense, I think it was disappointing. The main point I kind of want to get to is that I don't think it should be all that surprising that Power Rangers bombed in China. I think we've already known this, but all these movies, they love the Chinese market, but the Chinese market doesn't like every single movie we kind of throw at them, right? Mm. I think in previous episodes, I was talking to you about how audiences in North America and China are different. The ones in Asia tend to be a little more fascinated or in all of the CGI that right. North America produces because the domestic films they have can't come up with the same kind of quality and, and technology to do it. So out of curiosity, I checked on Wikipedia and I checked out the 10 highest grossing U.S. films in China. The first one, of course, is the newest Fate of the Furious. That's no surprise. 2.65 billion. The second one is Furious 7. The third one, Age of Extinction Transformers. Four, Zootopia. Five, Warcraft, which bombed domestically. Mm. But obviously, like the game itself had a lot of followings in China and it was a huge success. And I don't think at any point there was a doubt that it was made for an audience in China. But anyway, number six is Age of Ultron. Number seven, Jurassic World. Number eight, Avatar. Incidentally, also the only one released before 2011 in the top 10. Not not counting Titanic 3D, which made a lot of money. Um, Number nine was Civil War. Number 10 was Great Wall. Although, like, I think Kong has surpassed it, probably, or will surpass it. Oh, yeah. Okay. But from all these 10 movies, I I think you can conclusively say two things. A lot of these are CGI heavy. A lot of them are also either sequels or had a built-in fan base in China already. Now, even though Power Rangers was Japan, it was Asian, keep in mind that when it came out in the early, mid-90s, like, the Chinese censorship was a lot worse than it is now. Oh. So even though Power Rangers is from Asia and everyone, a lot of people in Asia recognize it, the Chinese may not have the same familiarity with it. So for them, there's no built-in fan base for them. There's no people like me in China who grew up with Power Rangers. It's not like the, the CGI in Power Rangers was bad. I, I think in some points it was actually quite good. It wasn't at the scale of a of Avengers or Transformers. And maybe that was the part that they couldn't really sell the Chinese audience on because the CGI suits and the CGI Zords don't even come up at like, like three quarters or nearly to towards the end of the movie. And I think had they marketed it like a Transformers type movie where it's about like robotic giant machines and CGI, I think it would have sold a lot better. And the other thing was the release date. I have no idea why the Chinese release date is this week when the movie came out like two months ago in North America. I think whatever buzz North America could generate was already dissipated stateside, so it never reached the other side of the globe. Yeah, that is a that is a bit of a weird marketing strategy because, well, I think... Most movies open in Asia first. For almost all of like the recent ones, you know, they've, they've opened in China almost... You know, within 
a two weeks or something of the uh, the U.S. Uh, release. Yeah, or before, right? So I think I don't know why there is such a lag. I tried to look up films that had like such a difference in 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 release dates, and I, I couldn't really find anything that was comparable. But do you know what the release date in Japan is though? July fifteenth. Oh, so they waited. They waited that long for it. There's two more months to go before it's even released in Japan. That's strange. Do you think that's got something to do with just the the strategy on the part of Saban? It may be because they want a big summer release in Japan. But like I said, whatever good buzz had been generated in North America would have already like been lost. Like you couldn't capitalize on the word of mouth. And I don't even know if word of mouth travels from like North America to Asia. But at some point, if enough, if enough people talk about Power Rangers, the other side of the globe is going to hear it, right? Yeah, but they're really risking being buried by just the, the sheer volume of, of the other summer releases. Yeah, and keep in mind, like, Japan is quite similar to China in certain aspects in that their fan base now, their moviegoers now, are also very familiar with Captain America, Iron Man, Fast and the Furious. Like, these characters are known to them as... They are known to us, whereas Power Rangers are going to have to dig a little deeper in the past. And keep in mind, like like I said before, like pop culture in North America is a weird thing. You don't at all have the same sort of like collective memory, same some sort of like social identity associated with it. I think there are like blogs and websites dedicated to this stuff, but they don't have, I think, the same conversations about the impact of it on broader society. Okay, yeah. So it's not that surprising, like, it did so poorly in China, especially Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, it's probably going to be on the top 10 soon, you know? But I do think we probably overestimated how impactful the movie was going to be. That's for sure. Yeah, so do you think Saban, it's a major miscalculation on their part because they, maybe they banked too hard on having the Chinese market pick it up and uh, guarantee them this big series they wanted? I think so, and I, I also just don't understand why the release dates are so far apart. I did look up the old Power Rangers, the first one from like 95, I believe it was. Only, I think around like 55% of its entire gross was domestic. So it had a huge international gross as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so there is maybe to a point that Power Rangers did have a strong international potential. Maybe it just hasn't been realized. We won't know until Japan actually opens. And I think that will, that's like the big marker. Like how it does in Japan, I think, will indicate how well that franchise will do in the future, if we're going to get a sequel or not. Right. But uh, I'm not optimistic at all. <laughs> um, keep in mind the 95 Power Rangers, the CGI was horrific. It was awful, even for <laughs> yeah. those standards. So like maybe because it didn't sell well, the, the CGI wasn't good enough. It just didn't take with the international audience. Like, keep in mind, like, the Japanese have a lot of pride in their stuff. They really put themselves at a pretty high standard. Mm. And the Chinese moviegoers, they they demand quality as well, right? Right. I mean, it's really unfortunate. I wish we had gotten a sequel. I wish that we had gotten a trilogy, actually, because, you know, whatever. But it looks like Ludi Lin's caught on to a new franchise already signing up for Aquaman. So they're already on their big separate superstar paths. Yeah. He's taking his, uh, he's taking the recognition he got and he's like, all right, time to, time to build that career. Whether the, uh, the DC universe continues, will kind of fall to Wonder Woman and Justice League, uh, because they're, they're still looking for a director for the flash and, you know, Aquaman doesn't seem to have, started shooting yet or it's but it feels more together than the flash or the cyborg movie if we're even gonna get one at least it feels like aquaman's coming together rather than falling apart like i feel like it's more head than the batman yeah they'll, they'll probably get those out before the batman whenever that is it is kind of thinking back now especially in the in the light of what's happened with like king arthur being the flop that it looks like it's going to be power rangers not performing the way people expected you know, and and these giant franchises that were pinned on the hopes of these initial movies doing well. I mean, what does that say for the DC extended universe? Can could we see a future where the DCEU is actually trimmed back in the same way because people just get tired of of poor performing movies? It's been a really hard time for reboots, right? Everyone's sick of them. 
So Power Rangers was a was a reboot, and it was an origin story. And those I think don't tend to sell well in to audiences outside of North America because they don't. I don't know if they see character journeys and, and plot structure the same way we do. I will say though, like. I forgot to mention this earlier, but when I sat down for my Guardians of the Galaxy screening, we got the full Spider-Man trailer. And I just want to say I hate you, Marvel, for revealing the entire plot of the movie. Okay, yeah. Because I can tell you exactly right now what happens, the main gist of it. (laughs) And I wish I didn't know. And I wish we had, like, blinders and, like, earplugs on so there are certain trailers we can't see. Because it totally ruined Homecoming. I know what happens. Yeah, even I, I think I remember seeing one of the full trailers like a month ago, and I had a pretty pretty good idea the thrust of the movie. Like, yeah, like Spider Man has to earn his suit. Okay, great, we got it. He earns his suit. Yeah, that's that's the driving force, and then it kind of culminates with what looks like a big climactic scene with that boat being cut in half. No, I would say that boat comes cut, being cut in half is in the middle. Oh, okay. Because that's when Iron Man takes away his suit. Oh yeah, good and see, point. And Peter Parker yep. says, "You know what? Screw you." Tony Stark, I'm going to prove this to you and myself. So he he makes his own little weird, yeah, blue and red suit. I think he wears the old one he has. And then he goes mano y mano with the vulture, even said, even though Tony Tony Starker, Tony Stark says, no, you can't do this. Um, so I think at the end of the movie, he kind of gets his suit back and he becomes a full-time member of the Avengers and that sets him up for Infinity War. Yep. Got to get them in place. Yeah, the only thing I wasn't sure about was how the shocker plays into the movie. Um, no, but it's a good point, though. Like, the, the trailer does give a lot of it away. Gives too much. I hate it. Oh. Rob, call them up and just be like, yo, get your shit together and cut out this crap. And you know what it reminds me of, too? Like, the now that we're in this weird era where these big tentpole movies are not the surefire successes that we might expect them to be, it reminds me of, it was like some speeches that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg gave a few years back where they, they essentially went on record saying like, we're looking ahead based on our experience as blockbuster filmmakers. We're thinking that the failure of the big studio model, that the one that's hinged on these giant films, keeping franchises running, that could fail and the whole industry might be turned on its head. I've heard that too, but they've always managed to survive. Like something else will take its place. Yeah, very possibly. But but uh, I remember at the time what they were saying sounded kind of ludicrous because we were right in the like the glory days of Marvel when, or even DC, like DC had just released Man of Steel at that point and they hadn't delivered Batman v Superman or Suicide Squad. And I think a lot, a few people discounted what Lucas and Spielberg said because they were like, oh, you guys are just part of the old guard. You know, you don't know how this superhero thing is going to pan out. I think those people were delusional to begin with, the people who thought this would go on forever. Because no genre goes on forever. Exactly, yeah. Like, when do we get to the point where the superhero genre becomes like the Westerns of, like, the 1970s when they were still... Yeah, we've talked about this before but in other formats like we talked about how born was a tired franchise hunger games and and the young adult fiction is a tired franchise yeah the dystopian young adult fiction thing yeah exactly so i i think i've mentioned this before but i would expect by the time captain marvel and those films hit theaters it will the wave will probably be either on the downside or over Nothing against Brie Larson or that movie. No, yeah. Know, but yeah. I just think it's too far down the road. Um, are we getting a Black Panther movie? Yep. Ryan Coogler from uh, Creed is going to direct. Right. So after that wave, probably, I think after Infinity War is done, anything after that just is kind of like either people aren't interested because the Infinity Gauntlet plot is over and the ones that will be remaining are the ones who like this sort of film. And there's a market for that. It just won't be as big. And I do think there's a part of me that wants this pullback because I think spending a billion dollars to make a single movie or two movies is frankly fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's reached a, a pretty a pretty absurd Yes. We are getting to a point of oversaturation. I, I saw this I was watching this trailer about a Russian film. It's gonna be released in Russia about like 
people who have like superpowers and can like transform into other animals. And it's kind of like, I'm, oh, is this the movie called just guardians or something like that? And they, so it's like, it's spread all over the world. There's a, there's a bear man with a Gatling gun. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's great. You know, I'm like actually kind of curious about it, but we are getting to the point where it's just too much. And I'm usually like right off the bandwagon before anyone else too. <laughs> yeah. So like the superhero fatigue for me is real. Like, if it's not a character I'm particularly intrigued by, I just don't care. Well, I think that's why what we were talking about before with Guardians, like this this cosmic, super colorful color palette, that's really the only thing, like, just as a as a bit of a visual snob, you know, I work in the I work in the industry to an extent, so that's to me, that's the only thing that's really keeping me interested in what Marvel's doing. Like if they had continued with the visuals, the cinematography from Civil War, I I probably would have gotten to the point where I just I would actually start ignoring the movies when they started coming to theaters. Civil War and Age of Ultron really weren't good, huh? Like the more you think about it and the more you watch it, you're just like, I can't believe I bought into this crap. Like even if the movies were on sale, uh, like the Blu-rays in a store. I wouldn't I wouldn't add them to my collection. Yeah, I don't Now Guardians, Guardians I would. Yeah, I already have that. <laughs> the first one, not the second one, but I will be getting the second. Any any of those movies that have that extra bit of kick, that bit of life to them, the you know, I'm, those those I'll buy, those I'll watch again. Even Doctor Strange I thought was kind of boring. Pretty sure I like started like daydreaming midway through the movie. But at least it had those moments where like the those those crazy the, the scene where where the ancient one kind of sends him back through the mid dimensions for the first time like oh yeah well, I mean they're still very well made there's a lot of production value and it's really cool to see this stuff on screen but uh, like my mom said you kind of seen everything already it's the same hero's journey kind of thing the same like activate your powers and get responsibility you know so yeah that that kind of I, I think that that works as a pretty good setup for the Marvel films and well and I guess the DC films for the summer so all that really leaves us is the alien movie which is uh, set to come out uh, the weekend this episode is dropping now I know you're you're a lot more familiar with alien than I am uh, the only one I've really seen through and through is Prometheus I was just thinking that I have to watch Prometheus again before I go see Covenant because I barely remember anything about Prometheus. I was watching a clip today about how they woke up the engineer in Prometheus and I completely forgot about this. I completely forgot that had happened. Yeah, because that's like that's the third act kind of thing. Like they wake him up and then they use his body to kind of incubate the xenomorph. That comes before. Does it? Because I thought they woke him up and then the xenomorph like embeds itself in him and in his chest and then he becomes the first chest burster. I thought, what's her name again? Shaw. Elizabeth Shaw. So her and Holloway have sex and she gets impregnated with him. Then they meet the engineer. Then she gives birth to the xenomorph, doesn't it? Isn't that how that, isn't that the sequence? Or did she give birth, give birth to the xenomorph before finding the engineer? It must be after the engineer. Yeah, because she uses that like auto dock thing to take the the xenomorph out of her, and then it it kind of like it survives in the medical bay for a few scenes, and then it kind of takes over the engineer, kills the engineer, and then it uses the engineer's body to get to its next level of evolution. Oh, yeah. See, like, I don't remember any of this stuff. I'm surprised that I even do. (laughs) I have to, like, refresh myself with the philosophy and the mythology of the alien universe. I think it would help a lot in this covenant, in this upcoming one. Yeah. I got to hand it to Ridley Scott, though, because these little prequel films they've put together and just released for free on YouTube, they, they seem to do a lot to kind of flesh out the background behind the film. There's this longish short film that introduces you to the the characters of the ship that form like the main cast. And then there's also this bit between Michael Fassbender as... Walter. Was it Walter? Okay. Uh, Michael Fassbender as his character from Prometheus and Numi replaces Elizabeth Shaw again. And it's, it's a scene that takes place in the years after Prometheus when they're traveling to the planet that's featured in Covenant. And there's this really interesting bit where... Like Elizabeth Shaw spends all this time fixing uh, his head into place because his, his head was ripped off and during the events of Prometheus, and he ends up putting her into cryo sleep and then kind of taking over the engineer vessel, and then they arrive on the planet and it looks like the planet is civilized by the engineers. Like there's 
there's a whole city of engineers waiting for them. And there's this kind of creepy bit where the film kind of cuts off and Fassbender's looking down on this city of engineers and the implication is like, yeah, he's going to wipe them all out. And that's when the cast from Covenant comes in. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's, there's okay. some interesting background there. I'm curious to how it ties into to uh, Elizabeth Shaw's character in the first movie. Yeah, because I think the the crew from the Covenant arrive and they're kind of retracing Elizabeth Shaw's steps. So then, this this short film does a lot to kind of fill in a few gaps. The early buzz is that this is like a pretty terrifying and generally well crafted film, except that the script and its characters leave too much exposition time. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of those sci-fi movies where you actually have to sit down and explain things. Um, I think I think sci-fi has that... It's like a permanent trap. Mm. Post-apocalyptic, I think you can get away with because it's still set on Earth. But you're set on a spaceship and, like, on another planet. I think you do have to sit down and kind of, like, refresh the plot and everyone's motivations again. Um, the key's just not overdo it, right? Right, yeah, because the there's a balance to be struck with the amount of like certainly the amount of exposition that you try to fit into dialogue because that's when it that's when it gets really mm-hmm. obvious the other ways to do it is like you know have some news reports from earth about the plant the ship leaving the planet and you know there's there's a few ways to do it uh, from a screenwriting thing or if you really want to challenge the audience you can just do none of that and just let them figure it out but that doesn't always make for the most mainstream movie <laughs> like it's kind of a it's a catch-22 that way what are you expecting out of this movie, though? You know, if the buzz is, is to be believed, it's going to do pretty well. It's going to capture a, a lot of the, the folks who are longtime fans and might bring in a few casual fans. And from what Ridley Scott has been saying in the press junket, he he's interested in like doing a new alien film every two or three years until he kicks the bucket, essentially. <laughs> That's not going to happen. No, but he. But that's the way he's talking. He says he he's he's indicated that he's got like five or six more alien films in in him, and he'll do them like alternating between Alien and then his you know the other stuff that he likes to do. He is a really good world builder, but maybe he wants to do other projects in the meantime. Well, you would hope so, because I I certainly don't want the like I mean the man's in his what is he in his late seventies now? I don't want the last few years of his career to just be alien all the time. (laughs) It would be a good way to retire. I suppose. Yeah. But I mean, come on, give us a few more of the Martian or or something (laughs) like, geez. But yeah, I think that about does it for this episode. We'll definitely be posting a review of alien covenant when it comes out. I'll probably subject myself to that. I'll spare Jason the the horror (laughs) and keep an eye out for that. And from Toronto, My name is Robert Snow. And from Vancouver, I'm Jason Chen. Be sure to check out kinetoscope.ca for Rob's review of King Arthur. And we'll talk to you next time.